You're listening to a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing November 25th, 2022. What new information about the assassination of John F. Kennedy was revealed after the release of the movie JFK in 1991? Who were on the list of individuals who had the ability to execute and then cover up the 1963 assassination of the president? Were there previous attempts on Kennedy's life before the death in Dallas? Why does media continue to sleep through critical questions about the anomalies in the murder? Will Kennedy's death shape the presidency of all presidents to come? On this week's Global Research News Hour, on the 59th anniversary of President Kennedy's untimely demise, we will probe the incident yet again alongside the work of solid JFK assassination researcher Jim DiEugenio and probe much of what's been revealed in the wake of renewed releases of documents since the 1991 release of Oliver Stone's movie JFK. Towards the end of the hour... We will also get a point of view by additional JFK writer, researcher, and research associate of the Center for Research on Globalization, Edward Curtin. On this week's program, Death of the Rising Sun, 59 years since the assassination of JFK. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 25th, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. That's the motive that drives this smear campaign. Putin has blocked them in Chechnya, South Ossetia, Syria, and now Ukraine. He has derailed their grand plan to pivot to Asia and to encircle China with U.S. military bases. He has been a thorn in their side for the better part of two decades, and he has thrown a wrench in their loony plan to crush emerging centers of power and rule the world for the next century. That's why they hate him, and that's why they use their media to make you hate him too. That comes from the article, Why Do Americans Hate Putin? by Mike Whitney, posted November 23rd, originally published on the UNS Review. The news came as no surprise to Pentagon watchers. After all, the U.S. military has the distinction of being the only U.S. government agency to have never passed a comprehensive audit. 
But what did raise some eyebrows was the fact that DOD made almost no progress in this year's bookkeeping. Of the 27 areas investigated, only seven earned a clean bill of financial health, which McCord described as, quote, basically the same picture as last year, unquote. Given this accounting disaster, it should come as no surprise that the Pentagon has a habit of bad financial math. That comes from the article, Where Has the DOD's Money Gone? The Pentagon Fails Its Fifth Audit. $3.5 trillion in assets, 39% of which are accounted for. By Connor Eccles, posted November 23rd, originally published on Responsible Statecraft. IDF Chief of Staff Aviv Kohavi arrived in the U.S. on Sunday and has been holding talks with high-level officials. So far this week, he has met with Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, and CIA Director William Burns. During the discussions, it was agreed that we are at a critical point in time that requires the acceleration of operational plans and cooperation against Iran and its terrorist proxies in the region, Kohavi said. Tensions are high between the U.S. and Iran as the Biden administration has been increasing sanctions on the Islamic Republic and is voicing support for protesters inside the country. Talks to revive the Iran nuclear deal have been stalled for months, and administration officials have made clear they have no plans to resume them, at least anytime soon. That comes from the article, Israeli military chief tells U.S. to step up planning for joint attacks on Iran, by Dave DeCamp, posted November 23rd, originally published on antiwar.com. Despite all efforts by Western politicians and media, Portraying Russia as an undesirable state at important international events failed to materialize. The West would rather Russia not be an active participant in shaping global affairs, including the G20. But there is no reason why Moscow would withdraw from such formats. It was German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who had to admit that they had failed to isolate Russia at the G20 summit in Bali. On the Ukraine issue, he had to admit that, quote, there are different opinions on the matter, unquote. There are several countries in the G20 that refuse to condemn Russia's special military operation in Ukraine, and Schultz had to concede that it is very important to keep communications with Russian President Vladimir Putin open. That comes from the article, All Western Attempts to Isolate Russia at G20 Failed, by Ahmed Adel, posted on November 23rd, originally published on Infobricks. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar.
Kennedy's death marked the end of a certain kind of innocence, the idea of the president's acting on behalf of the grand people of America and the republic for which it stands was eclipsed by a pervasive body which insists on the supremacy of the military-industrial complex and the ability to squelch the interests of smaller countries having the same sort of interests as those of early 18th century patriots, if they stood in the way of U.S. manifest destiny. This week marks the 59th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and on the Global Research News Hour, we will explore the facts surrounding this moment, particularly those pointing the blame at shadowy elements within the state itself, and not solely at the lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald. Taking us through the investigation, we will be following up on the July 2021 episode with one of the most respected researchers and writers on the assassination, not only of JFK, but of his brother Robert Kennedy, Martin King, and Malcolm X. He is the author of Destiny Betrayed, about the garrison investigation of the Kennedy assassination, first published in 1992, with a second greatly revised edition, issued in 2012, and Reclaiming Parkland, published in 2013, reprinted and expanded form in 2016 and then reissued with additional material in 2018 as the JFK assassination, The Evidence Today, offering a detailed critical examination of the Warren Commission's evidence and conclusions. His name is James G. Eugenio. Here he is now, remarking on what has been learned since the release of the blockbuster JFK more than 30 years ago. Jim Eugenio. It is a privilege having you back on my show. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. Now we know from your last, from our last interview, the the main thrust of the JFK assassination, how it was a conspiracy, how aspects of the mafia and the CIA, CIA were involved at different levels. Uh, the magic, the the magic bullet theory, the single bullet theory. We have been through all of that uh, since the release of JFK in 1991. There was a lot of responses by the, the American public, a major renewal of, of the activism. What, ma- what major, major details came forward during the, the follow-up declassification of documents? Uh, and I'm wondering if anything was revealed that uh, either confirmed or perhaps contradicted the investigative work that you and others have brought forward. Well, you're talking about the Assassinations Record Review Board. Okay. And that body was constituted in 1994, and they worked forward until 1998, okay? And they declassified approximately 2 million pages of documents. They didn't get all of them. That's why we're still fighting for them today. But they did declassify a lot of very interesting stuff, all right? For example, uh, that Clay Shaw, uh, the guy who Jim Garrison indicted in New Orleans, had a covert security clearance from the CIA and that he worked as a contract agent, very well paid for a number of years for them. Okay. That was, that's just one of them. All right. Now, another thing, you know, that we discovered was that David Ferry, uh, another suspect in Garrison's investigation was very frantic about separating himself from Oswald in the days following the assassination. 
Okay. For instance, he was calling his neighbors to see if anybody recalled Oswald with his library card, called another neighbor trying to find that famous picture of Oswald with David Ferry in the Civil Air Patrol. All right. And the what makes that so startling, of course, is that the FBI knew about this because one of these people ended up calling the Bureau saying that Ferry had called him, wanting to know if uh, he had a picture. And he said he suspected that he was trying to find any connection between Ferry and Oswald. All right. Okay. So that's another very interesting thing. That we David found Fer out that the... You're just saying, David Ferry, that's that, the, the character that was played by Pesci in, in, in the film. The, the yes. Castro yes. Okay. Right. Okay, another interesting thing is that um, Earl Cabell, the mayor of Dallas at that time, was a CIA asset. That was also declassified rather late, okay? And we also found out another example. The CIA had two plants in the Cuban embassy in Mexico City. All right. That is people who are supposed to be working for Castro, but really working for the CIA. When the CIA asked them, was Oswald here in early October, late September? Did you see him? They both said, no, we didn't see him. He wasn't here. Then they, they didn't want to take that for an answer. So they went back and asked again and said, are you sure you never saw him? He says, no, we never saw Oswald in this embassy. All right. See, now that's important because the CIA says that Oswald was at the Cuban embassy and the Russian embassy in late September, early October of 1963. That was blazoned about all over the media in the wake of Kennedy's assassination, because this was supposed to mean that maybe the communists were behind uh, JFK's assassination. But no, they weren't. They never saw him there. Uh, another thing, the voice on the tape that the CIA sent up to Dallas, okay, which is supposed to be Oswald in the Cuban embassy, uh, the voice on the tape wasn't Oswald's. The two agents at the FBI detention of Oswald listened to the tapes and they said, no, this is not the guy we're interrogating. So that's another indication. Did Oswald go to Mexico City? All right. Another thing we found out to give you one last very good example. Under interrogation by the ARB, the official autopsy photographer in the JFK case, a guy named John Stringer, said that, no, I did not take as far as I know, I didn't take those pictures of Kennedy's brain that you have posted up on the wall here. Says I never used that kind of film, okay, which looks like it's Ansco to me. I didn't use Ansco, and I never used that press pack process. See these little numbers here on the bottom right? That means it's part of a press pack. It's part of a series. I didn't use that kind of process. And so Jeremy Gunn, who was the chief counsel, asked him, are you ready to deny you took these photos? If that's Ansco and if that's a press pack, I didn't take these pictures. Which leaves the question, who did take the pictures? And why did they have to have another photographer take the pictures? I'll tell you why. Because the, the brain weight of Kennedy's brain that's recorded officially is 1,500 grams. 
that is way too high for just an ant. It should be like 1,350 grams. So, but what makes that even worse, of course, is that as anybody who watches a Pruder film, Kennedy's head explodes in a halo, okay, of liquid and blood going up into the air. There's all this stuff all over Jackie Kennedy's suit, her pink suit. There's all this blood and tissue in the back of the car. The motorcycle policeman said, we got hit so hard with the stuff coming out of Kennedy's brain that I thought I got hit by a bullet. So how on earth can Kennedy's brain weigh more than the norm is? Okay, how can that be? And the answer is that after our film, JFK Revisited and JFK Destiny Betrayed, and the book, uh, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, you'll see that this is not Kennedy's brain, which leaves the question, why did they have to substitute it? Okay, so those are some of the very interesting things, I believe, that have come out of the ARB, which the major media just kind of ignored, kind of predictably. They ignored it. I don't think they should have. I think it was very important information. Yeah. Um, so now, now that you've got like that, that perspective, I, I don't, I suppose it's more like you know, somebody who's uh, who, whose eyes are a little bit, uh, you know, disfigured, uh, suddenly putting on pre uh, prescriptive glasses. So you, you could see a little bit more clearly what's going on. Um, I'm wondering, so, so, you know, taking as a whole, who would you point to who have the, uh, I guess the, uh, the ability or ha had the interesting role of, uh, being able of of hating Kennedy, you know, you know, because of his Cuba situation and then Vietnam and other things like that, and and who would have been in a position to to execute and who in a position to cover it up? I mean, maybe just get a list of the, the essential characters in this whole drama. Well, by the end of 1962, everybody hated Kennedy. Okay, because of what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis and also the fact that after the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy was trying to make a rapprochement with Castro and a detente with Moscow. All right. So about everybody hated this guy. All right. Uh, if you're going to make a rapprochement with Castro, that meant you had no intention of overthrowing him anymore. OK, and if you're going to go ahead and make a detente with uh, Moscow, that means you're going to be melting down the Cold War. OK. All right. So some of the power groups that are usually named um, and we named a couple of them in the film. All right. Uh, some of the power centers um, are probably the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the CIA, Okay, the mob and the Cuban exiles. Those are four of the most popular ones. And most people, you can group the Cuban exiles with the CIA, okay, because they just accepted, they were essentially on a leash by the CIA, by the money that the CIA uh, was giving to these Cuban exile groups, all right, for certain raids and propaganda work against Castro. So those would be the four main suspects in the film. In the film, 
uh, JFK Revisited and JFK Destiny Betrayed, we concentrated on the CIA in the figure of Alan Dulles and the Joint Chiefs of Staff with the figure of Curtis LeMay, who was the Air Force Chief of Staff. Okay. Uh, now, with the Warren uh, Commission that was set up, I mean, that, that was basically a, a major lie job, right? And, uh, I mean, who, who was, I mean... Well, the, the, the Warren Commission was, uh, was a fiasco with, what, with the information we have today. The Warren Commission was kind of a joke. And Alan Dulles set it up, right? And Alan Dulles was one of the major figures on the Warren Commission. At the first executive session meeting, he passed out a book by a guy named Bob Donovan that said all the American assassinations were due to one man. Okay. That was at the first meeting. All right. And he was, see, he did at that time, he didn't have a job. Okay. He was the most frequent questioner. And he attended the most meetings of all the Warren commissioners. Okay. Um, this was really, and it was really remarkable that, that he was doing all this stuff. Okay. And um, he and John McCloy and Gerald Ford were a power center inside the Warren commission. We know this today because of all the declassified executive sessions and transcripts that we have today, they more or less dominated the commission. Okay. And they very much were going for the Oswald did it alone thesis. Now, let me add something here because the Warren commission was not a unanimous verdict. This was something that of a myth that propagated by the mainstream media. There was a group inside the commission, which I call the Southern Wing, led by Richard Russell of Georgia, uh, by Hale Boggs of Louisiana, and Senator uh, John Sherman Cooper, I believe of Kentucky, all right? And they, those three were not nearly as rabid in condemning Oswald and Oswald alone, all right? And in fact, those three guys, after the commission was uh, issued and dismissed, one by one, all three of them denounced what had been done on the Warren Commission and the report. Hmm. Now, in terms of the, uh, I guess the 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 motive of of these guys to to finish him off, uh, it, it seems to me that this assassination in Dallas was not the first attempt on his life. There was a previous attempt uh, that had been set up. Can you just talk about that for a second. Well, there are actually two we talked about in the film and in the book. Okay, and they were uh, one in Chicago. And that was the first week of November and one in Tampa, which was about on November the 18th. And um, the one in Chicago, we know a lot about. Okay. 
Um, we know a lot about the designated patsy, a guy named Arthur, Arthur Valet. Um, we also know that the Secret Service was tipped off by the FBI by an informant codenamed Lee. Very mm -hmm. ironic. All right. And we know that the hit team was supposed to be four Cubans with high-powered rifles. They had rented a room in Chicago. Valet was supposed to be on the third or fourth story of a building in which the limousine was coming off the exit ramp right in front of that building, okay? Now, the one in Tampa, the designated patsy was a guy named Gilberto Lopez, who was from Cuba and was a member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, all right? And he left Florida, went to Texas, went to Mexico City after, and then flew to... Um, Cuba as a single passenger on board a Cubana Airlines plane, I believe on November the 22nd. All right. Now that's pretty ironic, isn't it? Now yeah. what meant what in Kennedy canceled the Chicago trip when he got the reports about the so-called plot, he was determined to make the Tampa trip. Okay. Now, the place where people think Kennedy was going to be killed on that was a very long motorcade route. I think something like 20 miles was at this 27 story hotel building called the Floridian. They were tipped off in advance and a combination of law enforcement, that is police, FBI, secret service, et cetera, uh, were on every floor of that hotel because Kennedy was determined to go through with that trip, all right? After the motorcade route, Kennedy insisted on staying after, okay, in that lobby of that hotel, and he thanked every single agent and policeman that made that trip possible, okay? Now, I believe, and I think a lot of other people who are knowledgeable about this case, that... The Chicago plot, if it would not have been covered up and the information would have all been sent to Dallas, it so much resembled what happened in Dallas that probably that assassination attempt, which was successful, would not have been successful if all the information had been forwarded to the uh, to Dallas Secret Service. <clears throat> Yeah, um, I I know that uh, you know today there's still uh, a lot of uh, uh, I guess believing that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone killer. I mean, I, I think uh, Stephen King, for example, had written a, a, a variation, but it essentially assumes that JFK that that, that Lee Harvey Oswald was the uh, the lone gunman, so to speak. Uh, I'm wondering how, after everything that's come out so far, that that story can still have merit you know that people won't fall off fall on their backs laughing because it's so ridiculous i mean what are your what is your sense of that is it just something that's so taught to us stephen so king according to the people i know stephen king relied on the rifle okay which a lot of people did see in the in the film and in the book of jfk revisited we 
went after the rifle. And I think it's the first time on any broadcast media, okay, because this was shown on Showtime for two years, all right, um, that this has been brought into question. For example, the rifle that is in evidence that was allegedly found in the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository is not the rifle that Oswald allegedly ordered. It's a different rifle. We also showed that the clips uh, attached to the uh, rifle to support the sling are not the same as they are in the famous backyard photograph, all right? Uh, no one remembers delivering that rifle to anybody, okay, let alone Lee Harvey Oswald. And it was not addressed in his name. It was addressed in a guy named Alex Heidel's name. You know, and if, if that was the case, then it should not have been delivered to Oswald. Oswald, what is that as an alias? And somebody would have remembered that. Okay, so we brought up all of these doubts about Oswald ordering that particular rifle, which Stephen King thinks is such a strong piece of evidence. We don't think so. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You know, in, in the movie JFK, there there was a scene where uh, Jim Garrison, uh, who's played by Kevin Costner, the, the DA, met with X, uh, a character played by Donald Sutherland. Uh, it was he, he was intriguing, and because you're you're getting a, a glimpse of of you know deep deep crimes committed in secret by the state, and this individual adds to Jim's investigation, but only going so far. You know, he's just giving background. He's not going to testify or anything like that. He won't disclose his identity. I'm wondering, is this character based on an actual individual? Yes, it was based upon the late Fletcher Prouty, okay, um, who uh, Oliver Stone knew, and Fletcher Prouty gave Oliver some very interesting information about Kennedy's plans to withdraw from Vietnam. All right. And so they using a little bit of dramatic license, they went ahead and put him in the film in the form of Mr. X, Donald Sutherland. In reality, Garrison and Prouty uh, didn't meet until later after his investigation. OK, but they used a little bit of dramatic license to put this scene together, which I think is a very good scene. You know, for the first time, for the first time, I believe, in a mass audience we began to see the crimes of the CIA going back for a very long time to the 1950s, all right? And then for the first time, a mass audience saw the evidence that Kennedy was not going into Vietnam, that Kennedy was withdrawing from Vietnam at the time of his assassination. And the very fact of that reversal might've been one of the reasons for his murder. See that 15 million people saw JFK, all right? And that was the first time that they actually saw those that, that kind of information delivered to a mass audience, which I think was salutary. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I remember his uh, one of the things that the characters said was uh, that uh, in, in this investigation, the most important question: Why? Why 
was Kennedy killed? Right. Who benefited and who has the power to cover it up? I mean, after decades of, of research, um, you, you've got a pretty good uh, grasp of the answers to each of those questions, right? Well, I let's put it this way. We're a lot better off now than yeah. we were back in the 60s, okay? With a, we have a lot more information now, okay, that we can do some very informed speculation. It's not guesswork anymore, all right? And we tried to put that into the film. See, Jim Garrison once said after the Clay Shaw trial that he only had one corner of the conspiracy. He said that the, the conspiracy was like a parallelogram. It had four corners. One was New Orleans, one was Dallas, one was Mexico City, and one was Washington. Okay. Um, he could not put it all together at that time. He only had the New Orleans aspect, the setting up of Oswald in the summer of 1963, all right? But really, the cons the only people who knew about all four corners were the people at the top of the, of the, of the conspiracy, and Garrison didn't get anywhere near there. Mm. So uh, I'm wondering if we could talk a, a little bit more about, uh, I guess, uh, David Fury and about uh, Clay Shaw and, and the new things that came out with them. Um, how, how does how does this uh, these disclosures, you know, on top of what was what came out in the case, like way back in, in, in the late 60s, uh, is there any kind of a follow up there, legally speaking, where you could uh, uh, or, or, or is that pretty much been put to rest? Because I'm, I'm just trying to, to, to get a, a sense of how new information is, is dealt with. No, legally speaking, you can't do anything with Sean Ferry because no. they passed away so long ago. All right. But Clay Shaw always denied that he was working for the Central Intelligence Agency. That turns out that he was lying about this all the time. OK. And in fact, the ARB, in the form of a guy named Manuel Legaspi, he found out that uh, Shaw's CIA file had been decimated. OK, somebody had really gotten into it and deprived a lot of the documents that should have been there weren't there. All right. As far as Ferry, he even tried to deny that he knew Oswald at all. This is ridiculous. There were eight witnesses that put him together with Oswald in the Civil Air Patrol. There's a picture we now have of Ferry with Oswald in the Civil Air Patrol and the FBI, if they were really doing an investigation, they would have found that picture because they had a lot of information about that. All right. Now, when and, and Ferry essentially lied his head off to the FBI. You know, he even said he wouldn't know how to teach somebody how to use a rifle, which is preposterous. OK, he said he didn't know Oswald, which is another lie. All right. Uh, so, see, as most prosecutors will tell you, you know, um, when people do things like that, when they lie under oath, like these guys did, all right, you know, it leads essentially to the uh, uh, belief that something they're covering up for something. Okay. You know, the old adage is that most lawyers will tell you is that in my experience, 
people with nothing to hide don't hide things. Okay. Yeah. And so this this should have been the fairy should have been indicted for both perjury and obstruction of justice. You know, both of those are five years. You know, and if he would have been, that would have been a very strong motivation for him to talk. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, like somebody, sorry, somebody recorded the voice and it wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald at all. It was someone else. Um, They they went to a lot of trouble to reinvent Lee Harvey Oswald, didn't they? I mean, was it all basically geared to the idea of making him the target making him the, uh, the the lead killer uh, with all of this stuff on the background? Or, or might there have been some other use that they had for Lee Harvey Oswald apart from JFK? Well, if you take a look at what they did with Oswald in the last few weeks before the assassination, uh, they had people doubling for Oswald at a rifle range, okay, for instance, Okay, and and um, they're very credible witnesses in that regard. Okay, and there's also one I believe at a auto lot. Okay, um, there's also the question about what on earth was going on in Mexico City. Did Oswald even go to Mexico City? There's a lot of people today, you know, who think that the, he probably didn't go to Mexico City. If he did go, why did they have to? Uh, why couldn't they get a picture of him at either embassy? The CIA had cameras at both embassies, the Russian and the uh, Cuban embassy. There should have been a total of at least at least 10 pictures of him going in and going out. There's not one that the CIA can produce. All right? Why isn't his voice on the tape? Why do most of the people inside the Cuban embassy don't remember him? They remember a short blonde guy, okay, about five foot five with blonde hair. You know, Oswald was about five foot nine with brown hair. Okay, so very hard to think that they could have mistaken him. You know, there's we could talk about Oswald in Mexico City all night For sure. because that's how bad it is, the record there. But yes, you're right, somebody was doubling for Lee Harvey Oswald in those last few weeks before Kennedy's assassination. Now, what, what this, with the, the autopsy that was done, uh, and, and you said that basically that, that, that there was a lot of evidence of a huge spurting out of, of blood coming from the back, basically hinting that he was shot from the front. Uh, you know, doesn't that, in, con- in conjunction with ballistics and so on, doesn't, isn't that kind of a conclusive case or how are they reshaping this to, to, to make it uh, seem kind of, well, we can't know for sure. All right. What you're referring to is the Zapruder film, which clearly shows Kennedy's head hurtling backwards with tremendous force. All right. And also there is the bullet as it exited from the, the, the rear, right? No, no. The JFK autopsy says that all the shots came from behind. Okay. Yeah. All right. In the in the film, we present evidence that alters that. All right. Some X-ray evidence by some very good professionals like David Mantic, who's a radiologist, like Michael Chesser, who is a 
uh, neurologist. You know, the bullet pattern is indicative of a bullet from front to back, all right? And there's a, and you mentioned earlier, there was a kind of like baseball-sized hole in the back of Kennedy's skull, which is strongly indicative of a shot from the front because entrance holes usually have small holes exit and exit bullets where the exits usually have larger holes so this is the kind of evidence we advanced in the film that tried to show that there was a shot from the front all right and i and i think our guys did a you know we had a lot of very good medical witnesses including Doug Horn from the review board who worked on the review board. Uh, and I think we did a pretty good job in that, in that instance. All right. The autopsy in the Kennedy case was a mess. Henry Lee, another one of our witnesses and probably the best criminalist, the best crime reconstruction guy in the country. He said that he couldn't make hide nor hair of the Kennedy case because the materials were both quantitatively and qualitatively inferior. In private, or rather in public, with a bunch of his students up in New Haven, he went even further than that. He supposedly, according to one of them, went on for 20 minutes as to how bad the Kennedy autopsy was. And then in, in the book, JFK Revisited, we have him saying, here you have this shot coming from right to left, all right? That's the angle out of the Texas School Book Depository. Then suddenly, in Kennedy's head, it veers off and goes left to right. And Oliver asked him, how much of an angle is that? He goes, it's about 90 degrees. You know, very, very strange yeah. that, this, that, that something like that could happen, you know? And so, uh, and we also advanced evidence in the long version of the film, JFK, Destiny Betrayed, is that there was a fourth bullet found at the autopsy that night, which in and, in and of itself blows up the whole, you know, single bullet uh, assassin theory. Hmm. Uh, finally, uh, James, I, I noticed that, uh, I mean, as much time has passed since the, uh, the, uh, this, uh, JFK original movie was made to now was about the equivalent of the amount of time that went by from the time of the assassination to that film. So it's kind of like the midpoint. I'm wondering what is your sense of how the death of Kennedy under these circumstances, how it had a, a broader impact on politics and on, on the wider, wider degree with which people look at their America. Oh, I, I think it had a tremendous impact and it was all negative. All right. I think what, and this is, we make the case in the film, Kennedy had a different approach to the third world. He had a different approach to the cold war. He even actually said this to Harris Wofford, who he tried to recruit for his campaign in 1960. You know, we have to win this thing because if it's Lyndon Johnson or Stuart Symington, it's just going to be more of John Foster Dulles, or Dean Acheson. It's going to be that kind of foreign policy. And Kennedy wanted to break with that. All right. And he did. 
He'd been doing this for throughout the 1950s. He made his great Algeria speech in 1957, saying the United States should not be backing France in its attempt to squelch the revolution that was occurring in Algeria at that time. I believe that if you take what Johnson and Nixon did to Kennedy's foreign policy, just one instance, what they did in Vietnam. I mean, between the civilians killed in Vietnam and the Holocaust that took place in Cambodia when Paul Pont and the Khmer Rouge took over as a result of Nixon bombing Cambodia and destabilizing Sihanouk, right there, the latest figure is, is that it's about 5.8 million people. Now, if you take a look at films from Hanoi today, just look them up on YouTube, a Saturday night in, in Hanoi. People are dancing, driving motorbikes. Okay, doesn't look like they're being crushed by a communist dictatorship to me. That would have just happened sooner because Kennedy was getting out of Vietnam. I believe that what happened was that it eventually was the reversal of Kennedy's policies resulted in the birth of the neocon movement under Gerald Ford, who, of course, was on the Warren Commission, when his two assistants, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, decided that Kissinger, if you can believe it, was too liberal, okay, and they got rid of him as national security advisor. They fired Bill Colby, and they brought in George H.W. Bush. That was essentially the beginning of the neocon movement. So in a space of 12 years, Kennedy's foreign policy is not just erased, it's obliterated. And we have what we have today because the neocons spread from the Republican Party into the Democratic Party. I believe Hillary Clinton was a neocon in foreign policy. Who the, Do you really think that John F. Kennedy would have used NATO to bomb an African country like she did Libya? I mean, that's just utterly and completely ridiculous with the horrible results that took place. All right. So, yes, I think it had a definite impact. And I think it was all for the worse, you know. Okay. Well, Jim DiEugenio, I think we have to close it there. But I want to thank you for, for being a, a part of the show again and uh, for coming on and sharing these uh, uh, unique insights from uh, one of the most, uh, uh, well, un a unique researcher into JFK. Thank you once again for being on the show. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Have a good night. My guest was the renowned author and researcher into the JFK and other 60s assassinations, James DiEugenio. Find his website at kennedysandking.com. The November 22nd edition of Articles contains a comprehensive article about John F. Kennedy, originally published one year ago. In this new introduction, the author points out that 59 years later, the story of the public assassination has never been more important. Right now, we are once again faced with a Cuban Missile Crisis scenario, and this time the forces of the military-industrial complex and the CIA 
faces no man of peace in the White House offering resistance. The author is Edward Curtin. He's an author, researcher, and sociologist based in Western Massachusetts and also a research associate of the Center of for on Research on Globalization. Ed Curtin, welcome to the Global Research News Hour. Thank you very much, Michael. The date I'm interviewing you is November 22nd. 59 years ago, at this time, you just heard the news that Kennedy had died from the shot he'd received at 12.30 Central Standard Time. Where were you when you heard that news, and how did it affect you personally? Well, I was in college. Uh, I remember vividly uh, going into the cafeteria down a few steps uh, I remember uh, hearing something come over the PA, an announcement, an announcement uh, saying that the president has been shot. And uh, I, I was stunned, of course, and, and quickly went in, into the building as we listened to updates uh, on a television that was there until we learned about a half hour later uh, that the president had died. Uh, I was devastated. Uh, I left college and, and, and I went home. Hmm. Yeah, and, and what kind of an impact, did it ha- an, have an impact on your uh, way of seeing your politics in, in America? Yes, it did. It had a profound effect on me. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I was just a young person. Uh, in that year, I was a sophomore in college. And uh, as I developed my thinking uh, about politics and about life and uh, about just living in this country and in this world, uh, it, it kept reverberating in my mind. And then, of course, uh, the following, no, two years following, uh, Malcolm X was killed, and uh, I was on the basketball team in college, and one of my teammates um, who was there at the Audubon Ballroom as a kind of semi-official uh, god for, for Malcolm uh, was devsta- devastated as as I was when I talked to him. And then, you know, the it just the beat went on, uh, Vietnam, Vietnam, and then uh, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. And uh, it was just a stunning period of time. In a previous interview, when I asked Dim Diugenio, uh, Jim Diugenio about the legacy of the murder of John F. Kennedy, he said it was the evaporation of his model of foreign policy and that the neocons eventually completely took over. It established the the permanent national security state, in other words, regardless of of who you elect. Is this your assessment as well, or would you add something more than that? No, I would uh, completely agree with Jim, who's a brilliant researcher and uh, has done, you know, wonderful, wonderful work on this subject. Uh, and his, uh, I must praise him and uh, Oliver Stone for the, their recent movies. Uh, but yes, I, I agree totally. And I think uh, 
Kennedy was so far ahead of his time. Uh, you you probably know that in 1957 he made a famous speech as a senator in which he called for uh, Algerian independence and an end to colonialism. And he was roundly uh, criticized by both Democrats and Republicans. And this is three years before uh, he was elected to the presidency. And uh, this was a big theme with him, uh, the freeing or the independence of African countries and the end to colonialism around the world in Southeast Asia as well. So, yes, I agree. And, uh, and obviously an end to the Cold War over time. Uh, by 1963, Kennedy was really a, 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 a huge proponent for peace with the Soviet Union, the end to nuclear war, uh, the end to the Vietnam War, and so forth. And uh, the, the neocons uh, and the people who run this country now uh, for a long time, including the Biden administration, they've completely turned it upside down. They reversed everything Kennedy stood for. You mentioned a, a lot of uh, the the basis of his. I mean, he was uh, you know, basically anti-war from the, or not necessarily anti-war, but uh, basically a, a a kind of a, has took a more peaceful bent. He supported Algeria. There was the Bay of Pigs. There was Operation Northwoods uh, that uh, he rejected. I was wondering, was there a particular? Was it just a combination of all these elements that that led to their kind of turning their turning their critics against him and, and, and plotting an assassination? Or was there one moment in particular, do you think? I think that it was a combination of things, uh, beginning uh, right away with the, uh, with the murder of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, uh, whom Kennedy thought very highly of, uh, a CIA hit job, Alan Dulles leading the way. And then uh, later in the year, the, the killing of, of uh, Dag Hammarskjöld on top of that and between the two was the, was the Bay of Pigs uh, and by the end of that year Kennedy was you know completely leery of the military industrial complex the CIA and all his many of his advisors as well and then down through the next two years from the Cuban Missile Crisis of course, when the generals wanted to, to bomb Cuba, bomb the Soviet Union, uh, th these were, you know, maniacal people, and he thought they were insane. Uh, and then during all of this, his, his young uh, son, Patrick, uh, died, and I think that had a profound effect on him, uh, as Jim Douglas uh, has written. Uh, so he he was a you know he was a World War II military hero, and he was always close to death, and he thought about it, and uh, he he wanted children to have a future, and I guess that's you know it, so many things happened during that time period, and he was radically changed by the time they killed him, but he knew they were coming for him. Uh, he knew they were coming for him and that he would probably be killed. Very courageous man. Very courageous. We haven't seen anything like him since. And I'm afraid we never will.
What do you say about the way the media had been turned away from doing a proper investigation into the attacks and actually helping conceal it from the public by using the term conspiracy theory in reaction to the idea that it was the work of some elements of the state itself, even to this day? Well, you know, as you know, and probably your listeners know, the the concept of a conspiracy theory was something promoted by the CIA in 1967, I believe it was. Uh, So anyone who questioned the official story of the killing of uh, President Kennedy, and and by extension, uh, Dr. King and um, Bobby Kennedy and Malcolm X, they were conspiracy theorists. They were nuts. Uh, And so this has been pushed. And the media, who really are, they're almost equivalent, uh, or they are equivalent. Uh, The CIA equals the the media, the mainstream media, and they just do the, the bidding of the CIA, and the CIA does the bidding of their masters. Uh, So they've been pushing this nonsense for years, and it's absurd. It's absurd. Uh, A friend of mine, uh, Dr. Marty Schatz, has a great saying about it. He he calls it the waters of uncertainty. Uh, They keep pushing uh, this idea that there's something to debate, and it's not obvious that the CIA killed Kennedy. And, And Marty describes it in this way. He says, anything can be believed, but nothing can be known. So you can believe anything, but you can never come to a conclusion. And many, many uh, people who question the JFK assassination never come to a conclusion. It's quite obvious that it was led by the CIA. The evidence is overwhelming. I'm afraid we have to close it there, Ed, but it's been a pleasure interviewing you on the subject. Thank you for participating in this very important discussion. Well, thank you very much, Michael. And uh, the best to you. We've been speaking with author, researcher, and sociologist Edward Curtin, uh, author of President John F. Kennedy, His Life and Public Assassination by the CIA, republished at globalresearch.ca. His website is edwardcurtin, C-U-R-T-I-N, dot com. That wraps it up for the JFK assassination edition of the Global Research News Hour. Tune in again in seven days for our examination of current events taking place in Haiti. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.